Welcome to Life on the Hill. If this is your first time joining us, this podcast is intended for Hamilton College students and the Hamilton College community to hear the voices of people committed to the success of Hamilton College students. My name is Travis Hill, and I'm the host of this program. Today, we hear from Dan Chambliss, Eugene M. Tobin Distinguished Professor of Sociology. Thanks so much for joining me, Dan. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So there's a lot to talk about. A lot has been happening. But before we jump into all the things that are going on, let's start with what brought you to Hamilton. Uh, what brought me to Hamilton was a job at a place that I thought I'd be a perfect fit for. Um, I, when I applied, uh, coming out of grad school, I applied something like 37 different colleges and universities and 36 of them turned me down. But when I saw the ad for Hamilton, I knew of Hamilton. My uncle went here, actually. He was in the class of 38, 1938. Uh, so I knew about a little bit about the school already. But I thought it was exactly the kind of place I wanted to work. Uh, small liberal arts college, you know, tight community, all that kind of thing. I saw the ad and I thought, oh, this is great. This is exactly what I need. And they interviewed me. They were desperate because somebody had left at the last minute. It was in March. Late in the year, they needed a, a one-year fill-in person. Brought me up, and I interviewed, and they thought I was weird. <laughs> I mean, no, the committee, actually, I, I mentioned this last year at Class and Charter Day, actually. The, the committee, um, I saw the report some years later is what happened, which violates all sorts of confidentiality. But the committee, the hiring committee said, uh, said something like, Mr. I'm trying to remember exactly, Mr. Chambliss has some odd mannerisms but the students seemed to like him. And, um, and so they took me, you know, they were kind of grudgingly accepting of having me. It was kind of the idea, but they needed somebody. They were desperate and it worked out. So I'm delighted to be here. You know, I've been here ever since. Yeah. It worked out going from a one year appointment where they thought you were weird yeah. to approaching 40 years. I would say that counts as working out for sure. That, that worked out pretty nicely. I've, I've been grateful. I've been lucky. Yes. So that, that's the story. A good story. Yeah. A lot has happened in 40 years. A lot has changed. How's that been for you? Well, uh, really interesting. Uh, the the student students are quite different than they used to be in a lot of ways. Uh, obviously, some of that's just national culture has changed a lot. Hamilton has also changed a lot in that time. You know, generally for the better, I would say, if I was, you know, really being honest, I wouldn't say that at at a 30th class reunion, I suppose, but, <laughs> but probably for the better. I'm, I'm certainly for the better, actually. So it's hard to untangle how it's been, how there've been changes with students versus the way I've changed, because obviously I'm a lot older than I used to be. And when I came here, you know, people would confuse me for students and stuff, for a student. And uh, I came when I was 27. So I was the youngest person on the faculty when I first got here. And now I'm, I'm not the oldest, but yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm sure. getting there. Yeah, it's fun though. It's good. I like seeing the changes. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So in 40 years, I'm going to go out on a limb and say what's happening yeah. now. This is a first. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. No, it's first in my life. Yeah. In my lifetime. I mean, I, I was born, you know, fairly shortly after World War II. And that's the only thing I can think of that's comparable. I mean, I, and I'm projecting ahead a little bit, but you know, like if this all somehow magically ended tomorrow, okay, but mm -hmm. that's not 
going to happen. So yeah, it doesn't seem that way. So what's it been like from your perspective and with your faculty colleagues, what have you, how would you describe the experience from the faculty perspective? You mean of the coronavirus? Of moving to online learning? Well, it's obviously not the same for me as for a student, not at all. In a sense, for me personally, it's been not that difficult so far because I'm planning to retire in another year. And so it almost feels like I'm in semi-retirement being at home this much and not being in the classroom and suffering the, you know, some of the, the great loss I anticipate in retirement is the lack of social, let's call it social infrastructure. Mm-hmm. You know, just being around people every day and seeing, you know, walking across campus and seeing people like you and seeing my colleagues and staff people and the, you know, the guy who cleans our building every morning, things of that sort. I'm unhappy about losing that. That feeling has set in a lot earlier than I thought it would, mm-hmm. I guess, is is almost the way I feel about it. The faculty, the transition to doing it online, we haven't started yet, although I just uh, about half an hour ago, finished a kind of pilot class with a group of students who are helping me figure out how to use Zoom mm-hmm. and how we're going to do it. I think it'll, at least initially, it'll be fine because it's a novelty. Mm-hmm. And just learning to do it in itself is going to be engaging. Mm-hmm. You know, people will be paying more attention and they're trying to figure out how do we do this. And everybody's kind of laughing about, oh, I'm going to raise my hand give them a thumbs up on the screen, that kind of business. And folks think that's cute. So there's that. And I would also add that Hamilton shines at this sort of thing. I think it's, I I used to be a commissioner on the Middle States Commission, which oversees all the colleges and universities in our part of the country, 500 plus schools. And I was a member of the governing board of that, <laughs> believe it or not. Like, don't blame me for things they do, but that's, that's how it is. And I've seen a lot, a lot of colleges. And this one is one of the best run places I've ever seen. And I mean, compared to other high, high profile elite schools, we have an exceptionally good administrative structure, especially the middle ranks. Uh, that is a lot of people, sort of the faceless, you know, unknown to the students, people in the college bureaucracy, a lot of them are just really, really good at their jobs in ways that come through at times like this. And and I'm impressed with the top administration right now with how they're handling this whole thing. You know, we get those memos from the different vice presidents and President Whitman and saying, here's what's going on, here's what we're trying to do, and here's why. I think that's a remarkable expression of leadership and caring in a time when we need it. So that's, that's all to the good, the bad parts that are going to happen. And I, I mean, it's kind of weird, you know, you're seeing a tidal wave coming at you like this or a freight train or something, but we are, and I'm, you know, I personally am in all of the vulnerable categories. Uh, you know, when they put out these things and say, here are the groups that are at risk, I discovered about two and a half weeks ago, hey, I check all the boxes, which is a strange feeling. But that said, it's good to be part of a community that I think is really doing things, is doing it right. So what do you anticipate the students? Do you have any advice for students on mm. making this transition to online mm, learning yeah. things that they could or should be <laughs> considering? Sure. Doing? Get on a schedule. Right. Get on a schedule. You got to have a daily schedule 
uh, you know, Monday through Friday kind of thing where you say these hours I'm doing this, these hours I'm doing that. And, and the magic of those is if you can stick with it for two weeks or so, usually you get, then it locks in, it tends to psychologically work out. I think there's some incentive for students to do that just as a way of getting, getting out of your head. I mean, it is, it's different in different parts of the country right now, but soon enough, this thing's going to be just all over us. Being able to say, well, look, you know, it's 2.30. I'm, I'm going to go online and do this class. It might be a, a very comforting sort of thing to have. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's first is, is get on a schedule. Take care of your own health. Like, you know, try to get out and exercise if you can. That would be my advice. What should students do in terms of communicating with faculty? Great question. It's important for faculty to do, to stay in touch with students. My own thought is to try to sort of over-communicate a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, like I've heard uh, the students I was talking to earlier this afternoon, actually, were saying, oh, we're getting flooded with emails from people. And that's a little annoying. Could be. But it also says somebody's thinking about you, you know, mm-hmm. wants to know if everything's okay. Makes it very easy for students, if they do have an issue, to respond. Just say, oh, by the way, you know, this thing's happening. What do I do? I plan to have virtual office hours, mm-hmm. you know, on Zoom kind of thing where anybody can just pop by and say, hi, here's what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and I think different professors deal with this real differently. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you the faculty uh, discussion boards are just full of stuff right now, not just about dealing with the technology and about the grading and about, you know, syllabus and standards and things like that, but also about the kind of issue you're bringing up like how do we how do we stay good for students who are going to have all kinds of unpredictable troubles right now and it's crucial to do so to take kind of a step back and just yeah. get back into the experience of a almost 40 year faculty member on our faculty mm-hmm. what are some just general things that you've gleaned through the years. I mean, you have a particularly unique and valuable perspective because you've studied what it means to be successful in college as part of your career's work. So what Mm -hmm. tips do you have for students? About being successful? Yeah, about making the most of college, yeah. Ah, wow, wow. Uh, Well, most of our students have that already, have a lot of that already. That's how they wound up at Hamilton. You know, they're, they're sort of eager and ambitious and wanting to learn and, you know, all of that good stuff. I mean, I find most of our students are, if anything, over-motivated in some sense. I mean, they worry about it too much is the problem. Sure. Uh, is obviously the problem. Uh, and I, I always try to tell them, you know, relax, look, you're going to do fine. You're in the, you know, the top 1%. I don't mean economically, but as far as achieving and getting places and getting the things you go for and so on. And that's even more true, obviously, for students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. I mean, they really, have, you're, you're on the track. You don't particularly need my help. I mean, it's, I'm happy to offer it and, you know, encourage you on your way. But the data is real clear. Our students, I mean, they turn out really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the major lesson of the book uh, actually was... The key is who is the people you meet and spend time with. Mm-hmm. It's not about the 
particular content of courses, eh, you know, like I teach sociology, I think it's important, but plenty of people, you know, you can take history or math or whatever you want and do just fine without me. So, or without sociology, but you try to connect with people who can help you and who encourage you and are putting your sending in the right direction and make friends with people who, you know, don't, not just the people who happen to be living on your dorm hall, which is the way a lot of people make their friends, but, which is fine. But, but if you can also sort of seek out groups of people who are different, who you can learn from, that's incredibly valuable. And the thing is that Hamilton with the relatively small size and the close uh, and the culture of close personal connections and the friendliness, frankly, you know, that people are, most people are pretty easy to approach. You can really meet a lot of interesting, smart people who are going to be doing things in the world and out there and, you know, making a difference and all that and take advantage of that. That's the main thing. That's the main thing. Just take advantage of all the people around you because it's an exceptional group. They used to say Hamilton, a very special place. Well, that's true. You know, take advantage of the opportunity. Biggest thing I hear from alums, you know, when we would go out and interview them years after they graduated is they felt like they wasted the opportunity. Mm. That was a com the most common sort of negative comment it was like, boy, I just frittered around, didn't do what I could have done there. And it, it wasn't that they wanted to work harder in classes, but they, they felt like they didn't appreciate the opportunity when they had it of, again, being around such a, an exceptional collection of people. That's great yeah. advice. So you've mentioned this retirement piece, but let's go back to the beginning. Because yeah. one of the, uh, the beginning yeah. of the story, because <laughs> one of the things that I like to do is normalize experience. And one of the experiences yeah. that I'll share is failure. Yeah. And I, yeah. it's fascinating that, you didn't get 36 jobs and oh no no how did, i was doomed and how did you how did how'd you keep your head up and keep going forward well one of my mentors gave me a marvelous piece of advice in a sense i went into him and i was like oh woody you know i'm doomed like i've been turned down at that point by 35 places uh, right i said i'm doomed you know it's march uh, you know i spent all this time getting a phd i've never and he said, well, how many do you still have out there, right? How many applications? I said, two. And he said, well, how many can you accept? I said, well, one. He said, so what's the problem? <laughs> like, you know, why do you need more than one, right? You know, like people who count their rejections are just deliberately hitting themselves with a hammer. It's, it's stupid because you don't need that many. You need one good place. That's it. And that there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah. There's a lot of wisdom in that idea. And, and it's related to another thing I learned in, I learned from watching in grad when I was in graduate school, which was, well, actually I did a survey of, of all the grad students and asked them who they thought were the best sociologists in the country or something like that. And, and I realized looking at the results, there were people who were very famous sociologists who literally most grad students thought were just ridiculous. Mm. So, so the, the lesson I thought, well, that's weird. How does that work? And, and I realized it was, you don't have to have everybody like your work. You have to have a few important people like it a lot. Mm. 
that what you really, you know, you got to, it's not a popularity contest, right? People do all sorts of different things in the world. And uh, most people don't care who's a good bassoon player. Yeah. They just don't care. They don't know. It doesn't mean anything. But a few people who matter care a lot who can play the bassoon well. Sure. And you can have a career as a bassoon player. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to be good at it. <laughs> yeah. so, and the same for being a professor or anything else, I think. No, I'm a flop at most things I do. Yeah. I'm a total flop, but I've redesigned, like even my teaching, I'm, I'm, I realized 10 years on into my career, there were parts of it I wasn't very good at. So I just redesigned all my courses. So I emphasize things I'm good at. And boy, that's, that's a good way to go. Let me tell you. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're happier, they're happier. And they don't even, they don't ever know the stuff I'm bad at. Sure. No, that's interesting. I, I talk yeah. to students a lot about strengths and about how yeah. to yeah. invest your time in things that you do well and try to organize your mm -hmm. work in a way that mm -hmm. you're doing those things more mm -hmm. often than other yeah. things. Yeah. 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 How did, absolutely. How did you go about that? Well, um, I guess uh, I, I realized it, it was in ninth grade, actually, when I realized I should be a teacher. And it was one day I was in a history class and the teacher was droning on about something. And he, I mean, he was okay, but he was just kind of tedious. And I thought this is fascinating stuff. And I, I literally thought to myself, you should sit down and let me do this. And I don't mean in 10 years, I mean, right now, literally <laughs> in ninth grade, I thought I could stand up and do a better job of teaching than this guy. And there were reasons for that. I spent a lot of time uh, in theater growing up, you know, community theater and stuff and, and on plays. I've been on stage a lot and stuff, but I could get up and explain this stuff better than this guy. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't arrogant or bragging or anything. Again, there are plenty of things I'm bad at, but, but it was just realizing like, wait, I should do this. And so that's part of it. And, uh, and then I also had some really excellent teachers. Mm. Like my mentor in college was really just a superb human being. And she kind of helped me see a lot of that stuff and how to do it. Again, a person who herself was not good at many, many things, but said, you know, that doesn't matter. There are other people who can do that. True. I failed at everything. I mean, grad school, I failed my, my qualifying exams in social theory. Uh, I failed the, the um, I didn't meet the cutoff for the qualifying in uh, social research methods. I, uh, the book I did on colleges that I just mentioned, you yeah. know, that you, you mentioned yeah. with Harvard University Press, right? Yeah. We had a contract with Harvard. We wrote a book, uh, spent two years on the manuscript, sent it in. They said, well, it's not really our kind of thing. We, we, you could get it published somewhere, but not here. And so we started from scratch. I just said, too bad. I'm writing a book, you know, <laughs> and they said, you know, they said this wasn't good enough. And I said, okay, well, what would you like? And they sort of described the kind of thing they do. And so I uh, went back to the drawing board and redid the whole thing. So no, there are a lot of failures along the way, but I just don't think of them that way, I guess. How do you think of them? Well, I'm, you know, you, uh, you learn what you're good at and what you're not good at. <laughs> sure. sure. And uh, say, well, let's maybe not go that way. I also try to be clear for instance in writing books which i've done i've done four books in my career i i would literally um on one of my books i had a little card posted over my desk that had five names on it 
And I thought, that's the audience. Mm. Okay. I want these five people, and they were major sociologists, is who they were. I said, these particular five people, I want them to love this book. Mm -hmm. And so as I was writing it, you know, whenever there was a decision about how to do something, I would think, well, okay, if I'm presenting it to this person, what are they going to look for? Yeah. And I did it. And, you know, I just wrote the book for those five people on the assumption that if they liked it, the rest of the world would follow. (laughs) And it worked, you know, it worked. So there's stuff like that. Um, yeah, the failure stuff. I don't know. I, I went to a college that had, it was like Kirkland actually, didn't have grades. Well, I only passed 19 courses in my college career. And that was a quarter system, no less. Wow. Uh, because it was set up so you could do that. So you could take stuff. And then if you failed it, it didn't go on your record. Uh-huh. So I actually didn't pass many <laughs> courses. <laughs> However, I did really well in the ones I did pass. (laughs) I mean, like really well. Yeah. So, and that works in, in the, I mean, one of the problems I think our students have Hamilton students, they've been picked for their GPAs, right? Coming out of high school. They're good at not failing stuff because your GPA is disproportionately influenced by a low score, right? By an F. So they're, they're students who are good at, passing everything at a pretty high level, but that's not the same as being great at something. Yeah. So if I had a gripe about Hamilton's arrangement is we tend to select for fear of weakness rather than uh, appreciation of strength. I've always fantasized. We have a Dean's list, which is based on GPA. Yeah. We should have a president's list. that's based on really outstanding accomplishment at something. Yeah. Doesn't have to be at everything. If you fail three out of four and in the fourth one, you write nationally recognized paper in physics. Well, what the hey, right? That, that deserves recognition because the real world, you know, outside of college is much more likely to value that. That makes a lot of sense. Being well-rounded has its virtues, but as far as again, recognition from most of the world, you need to just be really superb at something. Mm -hmm. I think. I, here's another one. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you another. Uh, speaking of student advice and stuff. Yeah. So I'm profoundly sympathetic to students who are graduating these days. These yeah. days mean the last few years since the recession, yeah. 2008, really. Um, because, you know, they're going out into a ghastly job market. But I try to tell them, you as individuals, right, you're unusually well suited to do well. Mm. and you've got a track record of doing well and figuring things out and that sort of flexibility and resourcefulness, the ability to see what's going on and make sense of it and figure out ways of doing things and trying to be somewhat opportunistic about things and seeing where their openings, all of that's going to, I think will serve them very well. I do think liberal arts really works. Mm -hmm. Liberal art, if you do it right, right, that don't narrow cast, don't, spend all your time on one field or anything like that. That's just kind of a waste. It's wasting the opportunity. But if you try a bunch of different things and you learn a bunch of different things and you learn, as they always say, you learn how to learn Mm -hmm. and you're not afraid of trying new stuff. That's which is the issue for our students, right? A lot of them like, Oh, I'll just do this and never touch that. Well, that's a mistake. But, but if you actually take advantage of that opportunity, 
you can go out and you have the ability, for instance, a lot of our students, to sit in a group of people, a bunch of smart people sitting around a table trying to figure out an issue, trying to make sense of it, what's the real problem, how to clarify it, how to explain it to other people clearly, how to write something that other people can follow, where somebody can follow your argument easily. Uh, those are actually really, really useful, tangible job skills in the world. And most people don't have them. I mean, simplest example is standing up in front of a group and giving a presentation, mm -hmm. which a lot of our students have to do in classes. 90% of the world is terrified to do that. Yeah. And yet it is a critical skill in business. Mm -hmm. And I've had, I've had arguments with students who say, I'll never need to do this. I'm like you are wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. You are just wrong. And maybe you can get away with not doing it, but, but the person who can do it is going to be your boss. Right. Right. Because being able to speak on behalf of a group is, is a very powerful thing. As we see, you know, you watch um, Governor Cuomo on the television today. That's, you know, this is a good thing to know how to do. Yeah. That counts. And so, so I think our students develop a lot of skills they don't even realize they have until they've been out of school for three, four, five years. Mm-hmm because they're in some flunky job as a personal assistant or something. And they think, Oh, this is a waste of time, you know, but if you're used to doing a real good job at it, then they, the responsibilities get bigger and they get bigger. And next thing you know, they say, Oh God, who's going to fill in? Could you fill in? And you go, yeah, I'll fill in. And all of a sudden you're in charge. Yeah. And I've heard that from a lot of alums. You know, it's hard to convince parents of that, you know, that liberal arts is really valuable unless they've had it themselves. Sure. But it, everything I've ever seen says it works and the literature says it works. Yeah. The research is clear. This, this kind of education really does work. So if you knew in ninth grade that you wanted to teach, yeah. what was the process to oh, yeah. land on sociology? <laughs> uh, well, actually, yeah, that's a good question. I, in ninth grade, I thought I could teach history. That was easier teach English or anything, you know, all through high school. And then I got to my senior year in, in high school. I, I was 16. Uh, actually, I was a year younger than everybody in my class. In high school, in chemistry class, I gave a talk on exercise physiology because I wanted to be a swimming coach. Mm -hmm. And so I was into reading all this kind of scientific literature about training and stuff. And that went over really well. Like, you know, like I got a 98 or something on this thing. People are like, oh, my God, that was a fabulous talk. I said, yeah, I could do this. All right. And I, I um, then um, a teacher went out of town. My English teacher went out of town to a teacher's conference for a week, some, some big thing, and put me in charge of the class <laughs> for a week. Really? We were reading, this is true, we were reading Othello. It was a Shakespeare course. Well, it was a drama course, but big Shakespeare section. Anyway, so we were reading Othello for the week. He said, well, Mr. Chambliss, why don't you just teach the class for a week? I don't know why he thought I could do this, but I did it and it was great. It was fun. And, you know, we all talked about these plays and stuff, this, this particular play, you know, one, one act per day. And he came back and gave a test. And when he was handing back the test, he said, well, he said, I'm actually a little embarrassed. The teacher said, he said, because you, you folks, you guys did better. This is a boys school. He said, you guys did better on the test than you did when I was teaching. <laughs> <laughs> That's and I thought, well, that pretty much nails it for me. <laughs> I think yeah. this is, this looks like a good career. Yeah. And so, uh, but I went to, and so I was planning to be, a, again, be a prep school teacher, 
so I could also coach swimming. Sure. But anyway, so I got to college and within a semester, I'm like, no, 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 this is much nicer than high school teaching. Uh -huh. I thought, well, this is a cushy deal. I mean, you know, you sit around and yak about big ideas with uh, smart people. That looks pretty good because I was at a selective college. Mm -hmm. And so I thought if I could be at a really good college teaching good students, shoot, that's lovely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a huge amount of work. I understand that. But, but it's, you know, appreciated basically. And the students like Hamilton students, they're nice, <laughs> you know, and they're respectful and, and they're eager to learn and God, you know, what a great way to spend your life. So that was how I got to college teaching. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Travis. It's always a pleasure talking with you. That was Dan Chambliss, Eugene M. Tobin, Distinguished Professor of Sociology. Stay tuned for future episodes. This is Life on the Hill. <laughs>